When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. back to the Love Tennis Podcast. I'm James Gray of inews.co.uk and the iNewspaper. I'm wedged into what an estate agent would describe as a compact hotel room. Uh, I can tell you that currently my left hip is against my bed and my right hip is against the bathroom wall, uh, which incidentally is entirely see-through. Overall, very fashionable hotel here in Glasgow, where I am for the Billie Jean King Cup Finals. Uh, they're very catchily named and very hard for me to say. Uh, as always, I've got George Belshaw, the tennis writer, with me and our resident tennis coach, Calvin Beton, to discuss everything that's been going on in tennis over the last seven days. There is, of course, loads to talk about. The WCA Finals, well... The WTA Finals still hasn't finished, actually. We're recording this on Monday night, and incredibly, uh, the WTA Finals finishes in about eight hours' time. We'll discuss the whys and wherefores of that. We'll talk about the end of Igor Shrontek's season. Uh, Alex de Manure ending an 18-match losing streak with an absolutely absurd run against top five players. Uh, we'll talk about all the results in Paris, including quite a disappointing week for Britain's record-breaking field, but a very satisfying week for Holger Rune, slightly less so for Novak Djokovic, of course. And we'll also discuss why Nick Kyrgios has agreed to give a fan £20,000. Um, we must start, though, with the WT Finals, because technically they are still ongoing. It, it has been, George, a week... I don't think there have been many good news stories for the WTA, put it that way. We started by talking about ticket sales, which everyone was worried would be really bad, and frankly, they have been quite bad. Yeah, I mean, it, it's improved a bit as the week's gone on, but <clears throat> it it was pretty disastrous optics at the start of the week. Um, you know, you'll get a lot of people coming out, as I've seen on social media, defending the tournament, being like, oh, they only knew they were going to have it a month in advance and the WTA was limited in options because um, they could only commit to this year contractually, so that kind of minimised the number of events that were interested in. But I do just find it quite hard to believe that you can't integrate a couple of kids' days or whatever 
in Texas. Like, I, I just don't believe that's that hard to do. Like, personally, I, like I've no experience putting on events. But if you know you're really struggling with tickets, and you're only selling them for sixteen dollars a pop, I think in was the the figures I've seen kind of popping around. Mm. Come on, like you, you can't be serving up a totally and it was totally empty, wasn't it? I mean, it, yeah. it was pretty shocking and. <laughs> It's a shame because there have been some good matches and a couple of, you know, it's nice to see, we'll come on to this in a bit, but it's nice to see someone actually beats Fiontech who, you know, should be someone who can play, uh, well, you know, someone who has been in the top eight regularly for seasons and seasons and we've kind of maybe been writing her off a little bit. You know, that's the start of a potential storyline of someone who can, has shown they can be consistent as staying up there but not quite done it at the slams but has the weapons to beat Fiontech and... uh just all feels a little, little bit flat again and you know I, I do have sympathies with the kind of the china situation and what the logistical problems are but i'm always just like it can't be that bad come on guys come i on. mean also it, the china situation is not new the wta have taken and i think quite admirably some people disagree but they have taken this stance against china over peng shui for a long time i think it's a year now and they knew that they weren't going to relent on that. They must know that the Chinese government don't budge quickly. So how they only came to the point two months ago where they confirmed a replacement, like how are they not looking at this six months ago and saying, or, or even earlier, you know, even when they first did this with China, they must know it was going to be a long standoff. And they say, right, what's our contingency plan? Like, what do we do? Like, what's the biggest product that we're going to lose by boycotting China for five years? WTA finals. And and it feels to me like they've just ended up with a haphazard solution. I think the, the other thing is that, you know, we've sort of spoken about this off off air about kind of the BJK, uh, BJK Cup uh, that's happening in Glasgow this week. You know, there's certain venues you can pick that are kind of quite quite good for this sort of event when you're doing it quite last minute you don't know how many fans you're going to get you know even if the Billie Jean King Cup sold half the tickets that that's very kind of an achievable number I'm not sure what the size is like 1500 or something Here? Um, but yeah higher, uh, 3, it's more like 5000 I think 5000 there we go okay well Texas is you know quite a big sizable stadium and it just yeah. looks so bleedingly obvious doesn't it um, yeah but but the in at the end the of the day, the WTA finals has been in China because the Chinese signed a massive check to have it there. It had a record prize pool the year Barty won it. It was the biggest ever prize money for a, a single woman's event. And the like the WTA have got a hole to fill. So and you know, I'm not privy to those conversations. I'm not privy to that decision making process, but they've got to look at it and go, who's got the biggest check to sign? And I I can only assume that Fort Worth was the one that came out of Trump's. Now, how that happened, I don't know, because, and Calvin, we kind of touched on this a bit a bit last, uh, last week, or at least I certainly meant to, but tennis culture is a big part of selling tickets to these things. You know, you talk a lot about the, the challenges in France and, to an extent, Germany, and, you know, frankly, a challenger-sized crowd in a challenger-sized stadium... If it's indoors, it's dark up top. People don't know how the small stadium is. I think that would have gone down better. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, it's it, it does have a problem that tournament as well because you then wonder, like, like next year, say something similar happens, are the players going to be that bothered about going? Mm. Like, are they, are they going to aim to go there? It's not. It's never really had the same feel as the men's, where the the players 
are really desperate to get in there and, and sort of come the second half of the year, the focus turns on whether the, the male players are going to get into the year-end finals. The women's has always kind of been a, well, if I get in, I get in. If not, it's no major sweat. Um, and also, it's weird how they've done it. I saw today that despite losing every match she's played there, this is Coco Goff's something like her sixth biggest uh, point gainer because she still gets wow. 360 points or something um, from from just being there. And that, that doesn't make any sense at all, how you can get that many points without winning a tennis match. Yeah. I mean, in terms of people turning up, people will turn up because it's it's a lot of money. Like, it's a serious, serious wedge of cash to set up and play that event. And I'm sure people will want to play it. But it's just, it is just a bit frustrating that this product is never quite being handled the right way. It's never quite being sold the right way you know there are problems within the women's game in terms of consistency and getting those storylines going but these are still you know in terms of women's sport this is the highest level of women's sport of any sport in my opinion it's the most developed it's the most money it's the most professional and it it's just embarrassing like having stadiums like that it just shouldn't shouldn't be happening and it's not the fault of the players it's the fault of the people handling it and you know circumstances aside it's just it's just got to get better this happens far too often and they're taking quick cash without really thinking about how they're going to grow the game long term i mean it's not hard is it they had a place they had a venue last year where it was a huge success and they yeah. chose to not do it again that's what i find most bizarre it's not like we're looking around here going well where can we hold it and and it, there's no way you can hold it just move it about i don't know how long how far it is a thousand miles south and yeah. to the same place get- as last year I guess in terms of that, they they kind of re- rewarded Mexico with a Masters 1000, didn't they? So I suppose that's probably why it wasn't kind of going back there. But well, Italy it's... has in the men's Italy has a Masters 1000, and it has the year ends. Yeah, but yeah, I, but this... I guess you know from Mexico's point of view, they probably would prefer a, a more stable 1000 versus a one-off. Yeah, I, I guess is coming back next I, year. Do you know what I mean? I don't know, but presumably the Mexicans only want to pay for one license. Like, like the, the, whoever the authority is or the promoter don't want to pay for two licenses, having previously had none. Like from a budgetary perspective, that's quite hard work. I'm guessing, Calvin. Yeah, yeah, maybe that that that's fair. I mean, I've seen some pretty. <laughs> one of the weird things I've seen this week on Twitter is people suggesting ways that it could be improved, and some of them have just baffled me. Like, right, what needs to be done is this needs to be a sixteen-player draw knockout. I'm yet to be given a real reason as to why that would mean the tournament's any better or worse. It's just, yeah, I mean, I, uh, it's also like it's a specific solution for a specific problem that might not exist in two years or even one year yeah. because the idea, I I would guess, is to think, well, if you pick 16 top players, then you're more likely to have all the stars who might be, you know, 12th in the world this year. But, you know, the whole point of the finals is that you've got the best people playing each other multiple times. I really like the format for the record. I think it's... I remember talking to Tony Godzik about the Labour Cup and, look, Tony Godzik is a brilliant salesman and he said lots of things I didn't agree with that were sort of bump. But one thing I did agree with is that the problem with tennis tournaments is it's hard to sell tickets for, like, the middle of the tournament, like quarterfinal day... You can't really guarantee you're going to see the big names. You can't guarantee when you're going to get them on or where you're going to get them on. And it makes it hard to sell tickets. Whereas with the group stage format, 
all right, you still have to take a bit of a gamble, but you've got much better odds of, say, seeing Rafa Nadal. Or, well, I mean, your odds of seeing Rafa Nadal at World Tour Finals are very limited, but that's because he's never there. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Like, it's the same concept. So I think the format's not the problem. Um, I was talking to Mike Dixon of the Mail today, and he, you know, we were bemoaning it similarly, and he mentioned remembering the uh, Virginia Slims Championships in the 90s when they had it at Madison Square Garden, and it felt like a massive deal. And okay, like, you know, we had Arantxa Sanchez, Jana Novotna, Lindsay Davenport, Martina Navratilova. Like, it was a much, it was a big established field. But nevertheless, there is a lot to be said for looking at iconic venues and seeing that elevate the tournament. Like, you go to the US Open and talk to people who go to the US Open in New York, they don't know who's playing. Like, they're not there because they want to see... Arena Sabalenka against Caroline Garcia, which obviously happens to be the final in Fort Worth. They're there because they want to go to the US Open. So if you create an event that people want to go to, it doesn't matter who the stars are. Like, I mean, Calvin, you've presumably been to this... I went up to Shrewsbury last week um, to the W100 event there just because it's quite a successful 100K. And it's successful because there's buzz around it. Everyone in the town knows about it. Um... They do a little big tennis ball tour around the town where they have like 12 big tennis balls and you can like do a bit of a geocache thing. They run events like every there's a marquee outside the tennis club and they run an event in it every night, whether it just be like a charity fundraiser or like a business networking evening, uh, kids careers in sport. And I don't know, Calvin, and you'll you'll tell me better, but I don't think there are many hundred K's that have an event every week, you know, every night of the week. Uh, no, it's I've not been to the hundred k there. I've been to Shrewsbury Tennis Centre, but again, it's it's a tennis town. Yeah. Um, it, it's a, and again, I, I've touched on this previously. The one thing that they have at Shrewsbury is that they have a it's a club mm. and they have good food there, and that's how you develop a. <laughs> but that I joke about, but that's how you develop a culture. That's how you develop yeah. where where families will go, people will want to go. Yeah. You can go and play tennis, and it's got a bar, as you'll have seen, James, and they've got a chef, and it's not expensive. And people mm. go. It's not one of these places where, like most of the newer tennis centres that were built in the UK in the 90s, are basically six indoor tennis courts and a vending machine. Yeah. And that's all well and good while they're new, but you don't have any people there who know how to run tennis events. Mm. And you look at the the best events in the UK, the Shrewsbury 100K, the Sutton British Tours, they're at tennis clubs by people who know, to, know how to run tennis events Mm. and i think what's interesting is that um you mentioned the family thing i mean i didn't i was interviewing marnie banks um and we were sat next to the soft play and it was busy and like there were lots of kids there because mums had like come and i think like some of their partners were watching the tennis and they were looking after the kids and then they'd swap over and you know it, it just creates as you say calvin it creates an opportunity for people to do lots of different things in the same place george yeah, and I think this is like the great frustration, really, is that it shouldn't be that hard to link up with the USTA and say, hey, where are your local tennis clubs around here? Where are the local schools? You know, okay, on on the one hand, when you're trying to sell an event, you need big names, you know, and you'd argue this WTA finals maybe doesn't quite have that beyond mm. golf, like in terms of reaching your standard American audience, that's pretty tough. But what isn't tough is locating tennis clubs, schools, linking in with these people. The cost is low enough. That there's just no excuse for not filling these things up, in my opinion. In fairness, though, is it is? I, I know 
I've seen somebody say it was Houston, and then somebody else says Fort Worth. Are they the same place? Or and so Fort Worth is uh, a different place. It's a different city, and I think it's just outside Dallas. But if you want, and I could be wrong about that, and I apologise. But basically, if you want to get there from Dallas, which I'm fairly sure it is the city that's just outside of, um, it, it's virtually impossible to get there for the whatever it was a five o'clock start local, I think. And realistically, you weren't going to get there till maybe seven o'clock, like after work. In which case, you'd have missed half the session. Yeah, it is. It's just on the outskirts of da- of Dallas. Like, it's this classic right. American thing where they call it a separate city, but like, there's no break in Conobase. I know that to be fair, like places like Dallas and Houston, they've got renowned country clubs there. There, there, there are people who play tennis in those places. So mm. I don't think that's that's necessarily an issue. But there's a lot going on in those places as well. They're, big university towns hmm. they've both got NBA teams the NBA is going on at the minute uh, they've, they've got they've both got NFL teams hmm. um, there's a lot know, of competition it's... for eyeballs yeah and, yeah. and uh, as someone pointed out on social media again and you know I hate Twitter but it's useful sometimes there's a lot of competition in this part of the calendar for for sporting eyeballs like it's just it's such a crunch moment in the season for so many different sports that yeah I, it is a challenge and, and look it's obviously a, a kind of it's an unfortunate situation because it's a lot a cross section of lots of different problems. But I think what we can probably all agree on is that running a tennis event is about running a tennis event. Like it, it almost doesn't. Like Wimbledon's attendance basically has a zero correlation with which players are playing. Like the year there was a massive boycott, I think about over Yugoslavia. I, I, I'm going to get the year wrong, but I think it was in the 70s. Wimbledon's attendance went up, like just because they 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 ran things a bit better and like opened up a few more tickets here and there, and like the people don't really often that often care who's playing. Yeah, and look again, this is where you can find degrees of sympathy with the WTA in the sense that it's hard to build an event that's just popping up, moving around, not got that kind of long term feel. So to just drop a tournament in two months in advance isn't ideal. Um, and they signed a 10-year deal for it to be in China, which has obviously gone pretty badly, not necessarily their fault. But you'd still argue, you know, they've taken a lot of deals over the last few years, which have been ridiculous money, don't get me wrong, and are vital parts of kind of the, you know, the financial stability of that tour. But they've backfired quite significantly in terms of the product. And, you know, that's beyond their control in some ways. But they've taken quick cash. It's never looked good, a lot of those tournaments over there. They've mm. been empty stadiums there. They've struggled to build that kind of brand really well out there. Um, so, you know, regardless where this story goes, and I'm sure it would be a pretty expensive contract to come out of, but you, you've got to make good, sound decisions for your product, and I don't think the WCA has made many of them for the last five, ten years. To be perfectly honest, the the flip side, I suppose, is that that chunk of the calendar, like the amount of money they got for it, like take the finals notwithstanding, that that bit of the calendar, the post US Open indoor autumnal swing, they did pretty well to make anything out of it. Where you look at it on the men's tour, and I, I don't want to compare the two all the time, but this chunk of the season, it's a bit like the post-Wimbledon bit. It's a bit like, oh, no real narrative. Like, yeah, there's a bit of a race for the ATP, but that dominate, like, that usually concerns about three or four players. You know, half of them have already qualified and the rest are out of it. I, I think in that chunk of the season, it's not the worst idea in the world. 
I, I think this is another massive problem for tennis with it, before we go too existential here. No one gives a crap about year-end number one, like genuinely outside the sport. Like you think about F1, the climax of the season, just to give a kind of comparable individual sport, you know, the climax is always at the end because they're building towards this one great thing. It's so rare for it to ever be an interesting thing because you've got these slams that are so dominant. Like yeah. the season should end after the US Open, as far as I'm concerned. 100%. US Open, A to B finals, done. Have an off season, build up your narrative, go again. And this is like, you know, there are argu- arguments why you want lots of calendar events in terms of like giving people the opportunity to play. You know, looking at Calvin's guys, their coaching, you know, this having these tournaments, these chances to play is really important further down the um kind of ladder but it, it, it i i just think tennis needs to think sometimes about what its big picture is what is the story it's trying to sell and it needs to finish on a bang much more quickly than this mm. kind of droopy end after the us open yeah i think golf has done quite a good job of that like with the fedex cup and the, like the fedex playoffs that is too complicated but it does at least basically because there's so much bloody prize money involved in it people seem to get quite up for it i don't know Calvin. Um, yeah, I've, I've thought for a while that I, I don't see why, and it's always baffled me why the women's tour, why the WTA feels like it has to mirror the ATP tour hmm. and not do something completely different. And I, I, I think that the WTA could be much more successful if it tried something different by having maybe, I don't know how you're doing the calendar, but maybe just having like 16 tournaments somewhere and then a, and then a different tour further down where there's more things going on for the lower ranked players. Hmm. But having because it hasn't worked that the best players haven't played as much like starting with serena williams and sharapova they stopped playing as much anyway so you mm. had these the tour was going on but the best players weren't playing but i think that that's that is a way that the wta could go in trying something different trying a different model and like george said maybe have it maybe have the season end earlier yeah than, i mean i it... think the the atp i think can go on it needs to it could do with finishing a couple of weeks earlier but mm. i wouldn't I... finish it after the us open I mean, I suppose it's what they tried to do with WTA mandatories but it, uh, and premiers, but it wasn't a clear idea and it was too similar. And actually, sometimes what you want to do is, oh, we'll take the really successful idea and we'll just tweak it so it's ours. And actually, to, to the viewer or the, the consumer, it's just the same. It's like, oh, well, that's basically the same because the big picture is largely the same and you ignore the details or you never find out about them. But yeah, the, there's something to be said for like, Almost going back to like the origins of the WTA and saying like it, the the top twelve ranked players at the beginning of twenty twenty three qualify automatically for these yeah twelve tournaments let's say and you still have the Grand Slams and you still have them in the same kind of areas of the swing but you say no we're gonna have a twelve player tournament on nine weeks of the year in these big places we'll make it group stage so you get to see players play multiple times. And then you almost take the whole, oh, you've got to build your stardom thing out of people's hands. It's a bit like, no, well, you're going to play all of these tournaments and you're going to be at the latter stages of them because everybody plays until Friday anyway. And um, I don't know. I, I The thing is that the WTA needs to go badly wrong to make those kind of radical changes. And I guess the Grand Slams are always going to prop it up. Yeah, I, I think so. I think I'd agree with that, something like that, James. And I think because then, again, a problem that the, the the WTA Tour has had is that the stars are going out early mm. in tournaments. And, and if you did that, maybe have it as a round robin each week, at least you'd know that the stars are going to be in for three games. 
yeah. for three matches. You don't have to have the same scoring system. Try something else with the scoring system. Try different scoring systems at different events. Yeah. But it seems to be this focus on... And you could have, look, you could have some of the events at the same time as some of the men's, where they have them now. Have Indian Wells. Just have it different than the men's do. But at the minute, it's this idea of constantly trying, at the same time, trying to match the men's but also acknowledge it or not acknowledging that it needs the men's tour, needs the ATP tour to bring the crowds in. And mm. I think that's where it's got a false sense of security. And I've thought that for a while, that this idea that the women's tour can sustain itself, I really don't think at the minute it can on mm. the model that it's on. Should we talk about some tennis? I feel like we've talked a lot about how to do tennis, but not tennis itself. Um, I, I suppose the most interesting result and the one that stands out um, and the one that I woke up to and was most surprised by is the semi-final defeat. Igor Shontek's season ends with a breadstick to Irina Sabalenka. Um, I, I guess, George, we've always talked about Sabalenka as the type of player that would beat Shontek. You know, she's got that bad matchup with Yelena Ostapenko where she's lost three times to her. And you would think certainly maybe the 2021 Igor Shontek was vulnerable to those people who could take the racket out of her hand and get her moving around a bit more. I would say her defence has improved a huge amount this year, but I suppose you're always going to be vulnerable to someone like Irina Sabalenka when, when she has her day. Yeah, exactly that. I think you know, Sabalenka is probably one of the most permanently frustrating players on the tour in many ways. Like We've, we've spoken about her on the one hand being really consistent. She is the most consistent player there's been over the last five years in terms of being in that top eight all the time. That's a good point. I, I'm pretty sure she's not dropped out. And yet she feels so horribly, horribly inconsistent in many ways. And that's probably more from kind of a grand slam sense. You know, she maybe not had the runs she should have. And, you know, Sabalenka's previous results to Spiontek are like crazy bad. Like, literally, I think her best set is taking three games off her in their past three meetings this mm. year. Um, and she's just totally flipped that scoreline on its head. And, you know, we we really do want to get to a place where we have a belief that people are going to come into a match with Sviontek and have a chance of winning. And Sabalenka is one of the few that has the weapons to take the racket out of Sviontek's hands and anyone's hands. I don't see, you know, I've said this multiple times at the minute, Goff ain't winning that matchup for a couple of years until she makes some kind of big changes. Jabor will not win a slam if Sviontek is still in the draw. That is a horrible matchup. Sabalenka, stick her in a final against Sviontek. I'm not saying it's 50-50, but if Sviontek, if Sabalenka has a perfect day or hits really big and really well, she can win that match mm. much easier than people like Jabor and Goff. Like they need to play beyond their capabilities at the minute, in my opinion. Whereas I don't think Sabalenka does. I'll tell you one of the most disappointing things, and I, I'm going to say this and there's a good chance I'm going to look like an idiot because you will probably listen to this podcast after this match has taken place, but the number of times Arena Sabalenka has got through like and played well and then you get her into a matchup with like another quite aggressive big hitter and you go, oh, that that could be a really exciting you know, slugfest that could be some real... And she just absolutely flops. And like I just think that final against Caroline Garcia, who is like is an exciting, <laughs> aggressive front foot player, has the ability to be just one of the worst matches. That's my main concern at the moment. I mean Garcia's got just such a habit of absolutely bricking it in any situation where she can actually 
kind of make that next step as well, doesn't she? It's quite rare that you see her. Yeah, she's done better this year and maybe it's a turning point, but you know, you kind of got to a stage at the US Open, you were thinking, yeah, oh, Garcia's going to actually really turn this on now. She's got over that mental hump and then she plays probably one of the worst matches I've ever seen her play in the mm. semifinals, which is really saying something. So, yeah, I don't know. I'd, I'd probably fractionally favour Sabalenka, fractionally, but not much in it. Should be and interesting. Irrespective of the result, uh, Caroline Garcia has gone to the WTA finals without her coach, um, which is, I mean, I still, I mean, I haven't got the inside scoop on this. This is all over the French newspapers. Um, but she had been working with Bertrand Perret, and uh, about a week before WTA finals, uh, he said to the newspaper, I would have liked to go to the WTA finals, yes, but I'm not a man of pretense. And when it's over, it's over. There was no point in prolonging it artificially. I prepared, I, pre- I preferred to cut the connection. Um, Garcia then said in her public statement, I just would like to thank Bertrand and all the hard work we did this year. It was a great investment personally and professionally. We started far away and we came to the top of it at the end of the season. He has decided to leave the team after Mexico and I respected <laughs> the decision. I mean, I, I don't know if you're a man of pretense, Calvin, um, but pre- presumably once... once once you've had a breakdown with a player and like your communication's shot, you, even if there's only one tournament left, you just have to walk away. Yeah, it's a difficult situation like that, but it always baffles me. And again, something that seems to happen only on the WTA tour where Joanna Conta did it a couple of times, where a player will have an unbelievably good year and then split with the coach. And it's like, you have to wonder what on earth has happened there mm. that, that means it's irreparable that you can't sort something out to just keep it together. Yeah. And you have to think it's either, you know, it's either money or someone being unreasonable. Mm. And the money is usually solvable if, if one of the people isn't being unreasonable. But also the money is usually the explanation. And not, not that. And again, I have no knowledge of this. Yeah. I think sometimes, but I don't think all the time in Mm. that. I think sometimes you just get these situations that, you know, just some madness comes in and other people get involved and, agents and that kind of thing and you know mm. it just baffles me when someone's had a good year yeah i was gonna say i mean what what's the trade-off between results and good relationship i mean it must happen quite often where you're like god i find this person such a bloody bore to travel with but we're doing quite well and they've got kind of good technical knowledge like what how how good friend well friends in inverted commas that what what level of that relationship does it need to be before it's kind it, of it varies you know i've i've you know, it varies. Even myself, I've travelled with players who I get on really well with and spend a lot of time with them when, you know, when travelling, you go for dinner and that kind of thing. And I've had other players who I've coached who it's basically just on court and, you know, and it's not that you don't get on with them. It's just that they, a lot of players tend to like their own time mm. as well. You know, they like to sit in there, especially these days. You know, players don't often go out for dinner even. They'll just order in and mm. deliver it to the room and, you know, so there's no real relationship there, but I, I can't, I can never understand why, how that happens at the end of a successful year. Why you're splitting with the coach? And, and let's be, let's be frank, and let's give her some credit. Caroline Garcia has had a successful year, the year of her life. I would suggest yeah. probably going going back since. I mean, George, do you think this is the best year of her career? I mean, she was obviously extremely highly rated and then had that big dip, but it's hard to say yeah, that's not, it, isn't it? I think it's been the best year and it's been the best year in many ways because she's actually had a lot more 
kind of mental scarring to shake off after mm. years of a lot of disappointment. Like when she was first coming up and looking really talented, it's almost in some ways easier to have a good year. People don't know who you are as much and, you know, you believe you're going to go on and be the best. And, that, and when that next step doesn't happen and you're rocked, you drop down and she's dropped down quite significantly before mm. um, to actually claw yourself back up and make yourself one of the top five, six players. I don't know what ranking she's actually going to finish now. Probably quite high with this extra week. Um, if four, she won this tournament, four, four, four if she wins. Uh, if she wins the finals, yeah, she'll be four in the world. You know, that's an amazing year for her. That's surely yeah. her highest ever ranking. She's never been that high before, is she? Uh, it'd be her highest year end. She did actually touch number four in the world before in 2015. Yeah. Um, I mean, just for context, she was number 74 at the end of last year. Like, that. Yeah. that's absolutely mammoth. Um, it's It's remarkable. And actually... I feel like I didn't back myself enough on this. When she beat she beat Raducanu at Wimbledon, is that right? Um, and throughout that, I therefore sort of watched her a fair bit. Obviously, the Raducanu match and also like the rest of the tournament just kept an eye on her. And her serving was incredible. And like her self-belief was out of this world. And I wish I had said a bit more strongly, she's definitely worth looking out for for the rest of the year because <laughs> then I'd look like an absolute genius. As it is, I'm not. Um, but uh, more on that later. After the break, we're going to talk about the men's game. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to the Love Tennis Podcast with me, James Gray of inews.co.uk and the iNewspaper. I've got Calvin Betton, the tennis coach from Yorkshire and the tennis writer from Brumland, George Belshaw. Uh, before we move on to the Paris Masters, uh, it's important to mention that you can always get in touch with the podcast. We really like hearing from people. It very often stimulates some of our like most interesting discussions. Um, last week we had someone get in touch and ask why we were so convinced Coco Goff would go on and win several slams one day. Uh, and we had a really interesting chat about that. George, you, you got a point to say about that? Oh, and she then had a terrible week. <laughs> it's quite funny with that conversation last week. I mean, what did I say at the last 
end of last episode, oh, it would be nice if Goff could just deliver a statement winning against Fiance and she didn't pick up a set in singles or doubles? Or... Yeah, it could, couldn't have been further from the truth, really. Um, Coco Goff <laughs> lost all her matches in singles and doubles at the WTA Finals. She's due in Glasgow this week for the Billie Jean King Cup Finals, but she's not. I think she's arriving today on a flight, so how much she actually plays remains to be seen. But yeah, do get in touch with us. On Twitter, we're at lovetennispod. Um, and you can DM us or you can mention us or whatever. Uh, if you want to email us, because that's your thing, it's lovetennispod at gmail.com. Or if you want me to read out your message, like guarantee I'm going to read out your message, then the best thing to do is leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Um, we really appreciate them. It makes us feel good. It sometimes helps us uh, find more people as well. Uh, we've had a few reviews this week, um, some of which haven't got writing on them i don't know what i mean by writing like you know words um but here's one that does uh the the review is just entitled love tennis podcast i assume it means that tragic 91 loves the tennis podcast says been listening to this podcast for about three months now very informative and good insights into the sport the three presenters have good banter between them well done lads got good banter uh, and all bring something different to the show the latest episode on the 1st of November was outstanding. The analysis about Emma Raducanu was amongst the best I've ever listened to, and the rest of the show was equally first-rate. Um, thank you very much, Tragic91. And I'm assuming you're the exact same age as me, because you were born in 1991, so good good choice. You're, you're a good generation. We're okay. Um, yeah, please do leave us other five-star reviews, uh, and we will read them out, because it's a little bit of a kind of ego trip, let's face it. Um, now, uh, moving on, we need to talk about the Paris Masters. I'm going to read you a list of names, and if you're playing along at home, you have to try and guess what they've all got in common. Stan Wawrinka, Huber Hercatch, Andre Rublev, Carlos Alcaraz, Felix Auger-Aliassime, and Novak Djokovic. Yes, you guessed it, they all lost to Holger Rune in Paris this week. Scarcely believable run from the 19-year-old Dane to win his first Masters 1000 title, uh, 29th of April 2003. That's not like the last time I cooked myself a meal with more than two vegetables in it. That is when Holger Rune was born. Um, I hope that makes everyone feel extremely old. Um, it's probably a new experience for you, George, being a bit of a child, but... Um, Calvin and I are used to being extremely old. Um, <laughs> younger than you. <laughs> I'm going to throw myself into the old category. I, well, just I had a real middle-aged man moment today. I got a very early flight from London up to Glasgow, and I don't advocate flying internally, but there's a train strike on. And uh, I snored myself awake on the plane, which was pretty humiliating. <laughs> just... Yeah, you, if anyone's ever done this, they will know the exact feeling where you go, and then you don't quite know what's happened, and then you realise, and then you look around to see if anyone's noticed. Um, it was pretty humiliating. Fortunately, the like two quite fashionable girls sat next to me were like asleep on each other, so it wasn't so bad. I doubt Holger Rune has ever snored himself awake, being extremely fit and a teenager. Um, George, he could have gone out in round one. <laughs> yeah, he really good. Um, can you say is it three match points against Vavrinka? Certainly, say um, match points. Yeah, yeah I've uh, Cal Calvin keeps accusing me of recency bias on uh, on this, but I think you really do have to start looking at Colgaroon's year as a whole, and it's really hard not to be bloody impressed. I mean, we're, we're talking a little bit about kind of big rises this year. It's from like Garcia going from 74 to 4. I mean, this guy's gone from outside the top 100, going to finish the year inside the top 10. 
And I don't think any of us saw that coming, really. I think if you'd have asked me where Holger Rune can get to this year, I'd have said top 30 would have been a really good season for him in terms of where he was at last year. I think the thing that just keeps impressing me, and this you know, is probably where Calvin will kind of point to the recency bias, is I just think he's got mentally stronger and stronger all year. He's always kind of had that attitude of being a bit, you know, we've taken the mick out of him a bit for he's going to beat Rafael Nadal's number of French Open titles. He does have this like weird unwavering belief, and I think that will keep him being quite unpopular on the tour in the sense that he's just going to rub people up the wrong way and kind of says stuff. But I kind of think on the on the whole that's quite good for tennis and Rune being a bit of a wind-up merchant but also quite good is a is a pretty good thing I would be interested to know and it's not a statistic I've got to hand but I was just looking at the titles that he's won this year it's his fourth title of the year and his first one was a challenger in San Remo I mean presumably people have won a challenger and a master's title in the same year but I can't imagine there are many of them I mean am I imagining that Cowan? Um, Agassi won a, a challenger and a grand slam in the same year, <laughs> <laughs> about about four weeks apart, as I remember. Oh, fuck. Um, I had a really um, embarrassing moment. Speaking of Andre Agassi, when I was in Shrewsbury, I uh, sorry, this is it's a real random story from James. He wasn't Day. there, presumably. No, no, he wasn't. Um, I I went the the football's on, and I just went to the pub to like have a beer on my own and watch the football, which I quite like doing. Get good at doing things on your own; it's very good for the soul, um, and. There was a pub quiz on, and these two girls like dragged me into their team um, with no ulterior motives, I should add. And there was a picture around, and you had to name all these famous couples. And I did quite well, it was quite useful, and I just couldn't get this one. It was Andre Agassi and Steffi Graf. And it was just like, it was a weird angle, and they were kissing, so you couldn't see their full face. <laughs> but they were like, I, I just, I was so embarrassed, and I was like, this is particularly embarrassing for me. And they were like, why? I was like, because I'm a tennis journalist. And they were like, oh, <laughs> you don't have to be on our team anymore. Um, I wouldn't have been telling them that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's amazing. Agassi won a. Why was he? Pl- was he? Why was he playing that challenger? Do you know? His ranking had dropped. Um, oh, his ranking had dropped down, and like from he won Wimbledon in '92, and then basically he got injured. I remember the year after that, he was coming in with some half serve motion, and then he basically just dropped. I think that might have been his by his own admission in his book. I think that might have been his crack cocaine period. Right. Um, not crack. Was it crack or crystal meth? One crystal of the two. Meth. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then he basically dropped um, low down and then he set on Brad Gilbert as his coach uh, and he, he had to play challengers. And then I think he won a challenger and he got uh, he got a wild card into the US Open and won the US Open as a wild card. Mm, amazing. Um, well, Holgerun does not have a crystal meth problem uh, and he's also not won a Grand Slam yet. <laughs> um, but if we give Caroline Garcia credit, Calvin, for going from 74 to 4 in the world... You probably have to give Holgerun at least some credit from going 103 in the world at the beginning of the year to, as George says, we don't quite know how high he's going to go, but he's already up inside the top 20 and he could make it inside the top 10. Oh, you got to get 100%. He deserves credit. He's won a lot of tennis matches. You can't bluff your way into the top 10 at tennis. Hmm. Um, he's a good player. He's a really good player, really solid. And as George attested to, his, his biggest strength is he's got phenomenal self-belief. He really thinks that, and yesterday he would think he would have counted himself as favourite to beat Novak Djokovic, mm. um, and that's uh, you know it's sometimes you have to have that level of delusion. That's what basically makes great athletes, and uh, yeah, it's a good player. 
It's quite interesting um, reading sort of Novak's comments after the match. You know, no- Novak, for all his flaws, is always incredibly complimentary of people who've just beat him. It's quite rare. He completely throws a hissy fit and won't won't say anything about someone or really kind of dig them out. And it was quite an interesting question. He was asked to compare Rune and Alcaraz. And I'm pretty sure we'd all think Alcaraz will have the stronger career. I don't think that's that controversial to say, not to put words in your mouth. Um, but he he was kind of saying that he he felt Rune's backhand is the much stronger shot than Alcaraz's. And Alcaraz has the much stronger forehand. Do you, th- do you guys agree with that i mean rune's actually posting some remarkable speeds off that backhand that i've seen like it's it is a good shot you so, know my so, thoughts on big backhands boys <laughs> yeah i knew that was coming um so sorry Djokovic said that he thought the rune backhand is better, better than alcaraz's yeah but i mean alcaraz's backhand's rubbish like i mean not rubbish <laughs> like you know like it's, it's a pretty good backhand yeah but it's like it's definitely his weakest shot i to be fair this u.s open i was amazed at some of the backhands he hit um like yeah for, for, yeah rubbish i admit is a bit of an exaggeration <laughs> but like he hit some like that semi-final against tfo like his backhands just blew me away um Okay, interesting. I've got something interesting that Rune himself had to say, um, which was basically, he said, it was very emotional after the match. It's probably the best feeling of my life, my whole career. It's kind of a small dream come true, even though I have bigger dreams. Which, Calvin, I thought you'd like because of your love of players not really celebrating when they win the semi-final. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Calvin hates Holger Rune. Let's just let's kill him <laughs> now. Cal- Calvin's got a chip on his shoulder about poor Holger Rune. He's never going to compliment. My the chip ball on his that. shoulder is based on the fact that he's a bit of a dick. <laughs> I, and, and to be well, fair, George, George likes him because he's a bit of a dick. No, no. But then, as I pointed out in our WhatsApp group last night, when we used a different word than dick, um, <laughs> but and discussing what what the downfalls were with people like that, it's it goes beyond just being a bit of a brat on a tennis court. I, I think he's a, just an unpleasant person. And I, I, that's the only reason. I think he's a really good tennis player. I don't think he's as good a tennis player as he thinks he is. Mm. But um, I, think he's, I think he's a really good tennis player. Um, but I just don't think he's a very pleasant person at all. And I don't think he's like even one of those, as I said, George, last night, I don't think he's even one of those guys who is a bit of a, you know, can be a bit of a dick on the court. But, you know, they're all right. Like... I was hoping Medvedev would turn it into that that year when he did really well when he lost the final of the US Open. Mm. I thought that was quite funny, but Rune just acts like a spoiled child, and I'm certain that Vavrinka said those things because he'd have been <laughs> entirely right in saying it. Um, uh, he yeah, does. I... That's, that's the thing, and it's like when you're saying there he acts a bit that way on the court. I don't think he's ever going to get people to like him because he's it, it's not really an anger; it's just a brattishness that he has about him. Yeah, but the, we shouldn't the, talk about that too much. He won the tournament, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, I, yeah. But also, p- what people will relate to the most is Holger Rune, the person. Like we know that in tennis, um, it, it, it's. It, I think the thing is for me, he's nineteen, and yeah, he was talking like this when he was sixteen and fifteen, and he was like, you know, world number one hundred and seventy, and it meant nothing. And then he had that weird hairstyle as well with the elastic bands. Um, which is, you know, as bad an offence as anything else. Um, he, he, hopefully, he will grow up and learn. And, like, 
there is definitely a world in which you can be a bit of a dick on the court and then like step back over the white line and be a nice guy again like and it's kind of what we discussed about the Igor Shrontek like hindrance stuff it's like Iga Shrontek's the nicest person I know off the court. Like, it's ridiculous. Like, she, she's so sweet and unassuming, but clearly has a little bit of white line fever and, like, gets on the court and she's like, oh, I'm going to do whatever I can to win this match. George, you had your hand up first. I think I think we... Well, I, I'm... I, I, look, I'll, I'll put this plainly. I've, there have been times he has horribly crossed the line and been a, you know, horrible person, which, James, I'm kind of in the camp of you that... I'm hoping that's kind of youthfulness and not going to be a. So know, the, let's just, let me just clarify the specific uh, incident that, that we're kind of talking around here is that when he was playing against um, Echeverry last year on the Challenger Tour, um, he was investigated by the ATP for yelling a, a homophobic slur multiple times across the net. You know, calling him a pussy player and various other, well, well one specific unpleasant homophobic slur that I don't really want to repeat, but it begins with F. Um, and if you can't work it out, tough. Um, and yeah, that's pretty unpleasant, and like that is so far beyond the line. Um, just but just in case people don't really know what we're talking about, but you know, it was one incident, and we shouldn't say you know he's a lifelong homophobe. That's not what that suggests. It's just that's the context people need for what George is saying. Yeah, and I think you know this is, um, yeah, as you say, heavily not condoning that, and that's totally totally unacceptable. But I would love there to be a world, and whether this is Algarin or not. Where someone doesn't grow out of this and is just an arsehole all the time, because let's be honest, it's quite interesting. If he was good and was just a complete twat all the time without going into that, you know, completely unacceptable era, but was just unashamedly a bit of a knob, people would dislike him. People, but they'd feel something. And that, there's so many players. <laughs> I've always said this about sports people as a whole. The ones you care about they're the ones that make you feel something it doesn't have to be positive the ones you feel nothing about are the ones that just will never sell tickets no one will care no one will ever be interested and tennis has too many people who frankly it's not not they're not interested but it's, they're afraid to show that they are interesting they're afraid of this kind of fear and rune for all his faults and that ex, you know example where he went way horribly past the line and totally unacceptable the good thing about him on the on the whole is that he is unashamedly him. He doesn't really give a crap what we all say about him. And he is a bit of a knob. And that's that's good. Like we care, we're bothered, we we're talking about the guy, which I I think is a, a nice thing. We're only talking about him because he won. <laughs> like if he'd have lost in the semis, we wouldn't be talking about Algaroon now. Well, we might have spoken about the Vavrinka kind of row i think that's always interesting there's, there's, we've thrown about holgerun enough times where he's just had random spats with people casper rude at the french open Casper rude you know there is kind of got this slight interesting if he can win and be that much of a dick that is a great combination i i i, I, I completely agree with the point you're making i disagree with holgerun being that i don't think he's compelling at all i think what you're talking about is people who are compelling and i don't think he is at all i just think he's a bit of a brat and I don't think there's any interest. I don't find that interesting at all. When Medvedev did it at the US Open, when he started arguing with the crowd, I thought there's something deeper than what we're seeing here. He's obviously an intelligent person. I think I'd I'd quite like to hear this guy talk a lot more. I'm not remotely interested in seeing an interview with Olga Root. I just think. But will? But is that because he's young? Again? No, I no, I don't think so. Because I, I've, you know, there's been other players. I rem I'm old enough to remember Andre Agassi when he was 
18. And, you know, that he was a compelling individual. Like, and, and I just don't think that, you know, I remember Andy Murray when he spoke when he was 18 was, it was an interest, it was an interesting interview. I mean, it probably wasn't much past that when he got into trouble for saying he hoped that Paraguay beat England as a joke mm. that no one in the country got. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I, I don't find Olga, I don't find Olga Roon uh, compelling at all. I just think he's a bit of a, yeah. And we should also say that like not many 19-year-olds, even in tennis, are compelling. Like, Carlos Alcaraz is not a compelling talker. No, he's not, no. Talker. Like, and, but and... he's compelling on court, isn't it? And you watch him and he's got that kind know, of I, I, I don't know if he is compelling on court. He's just... Alcaraz, he's a, he's way, ex- he kind of yeah. drags people up. I think he's flamboyant and he's an extrovert. I, think he's I don't, tennis, yeah. I don't know if he has a charisma about him. And I think that's that's the thing. There's a difference between flamboyance and charisma. Hmm. I don't think he's that. But I think also, go on, go sorry, Jen. No, no, no. Well, I was going to say the way crowds respond to Carlos yeah. Alcaraz, they really respond to him. And like, yeah, we might not think he's compelling, but I think that crowds in stadiums do. Um, yeah, yeah, and. That that you can't quantify that. Like you can pump your fist at the crowd all you want, Tim Henman. Like it doesn't always work, <laughs> and there's just something you know. There's a je ne sais quoi there. Um, we're getting we're going to move on. There's there's lots more to say here, and we'll say it lots over the next couple of months. Um, because there's some things to say about Novak Djokovic. Um, he is historically the best player ever in Paris at the indoor event. Uh, I should say. Uh, there are very few stats that he doesn't basically top. Um, I think maybe is it Feliciano Lopez has played the event more times than or is it no, Vadasco? It's Vadasco, but he's equaled him this year. That's ah, the stat. So he's now taken every stat. And I just thought that was so interesting this week. Like, how often do you have that kind of complete ownership of like most titles, most finals, and most most appearances are actually quite hard to marry with like most titles and finals in a sport. I think. Mm. Um, and there are some other things in there as well. I can't remember what they all were now, but yeah, you annoyingly sent it as a link, George, rather than a rather than a screenshot. <laughs> so I don't have it immediately to hand. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, the the guy absolutely crushes Parry Bercy. Calvin, apart from the fact that he's basically the greatest of all time, um, why do you think Djokovic is so dominant at Paris? Um, he manages his season well, usually, doesn't he? Doesn't go and play. Doesn't ten- he's de- look. Anybody is always going to be better in Paris if they're not massively chasing points as a as a rule, and and he tends to not because he's already in the year end finals, and it's on a medium placed, hardcore indoors with no sort of random factors that can come into it, and he's he's been the best tennis player in the world for the last ten years, hmm. so that's why he's so good at it. That's the best players in the world will tend to win in those conditions. George, any anything to add? Yeah, I mean, he's obviously one of the best indoors players of all all time as well. I think probably. I mean, it's hard to say what exactly is Novak's best surface. I mean, traditionally people would say he's the best hard court player of all time, and then Rogers been better on grass. But in my, my humble opinion, the way the grass has gone the last few years, I, I think Djokovic will steam past Federer and make a little case to be best grass court player beyond that but how many Wimbledon tiles is behind at the minute two maybe it's another two teams I, think, yeah. I mean we should say on that that he's um, when we're talking about grass now as, as George alluded to that it's not the same grass as what it was before I think I'd still have I'd still say Federer is the best grass court player of those lot 
um, on proper grass, not yeah. the Wimbledon version. Hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, look, uh, the other the other thing I wanted to say about Novak this week is that you know we had a bit of a chat last week about people not qualifying for the ATP finals, and it's done a bloody good job actually to qualify of his own rights. I know obviously everyone didn't have points for Wimbledon, but you know he's not had points for the US Open or the Australian Open, and he's not played I think four Masters events this year. Like to actually come eighth in the world is a pretty pretty good effort considering how few points he had available to actually kind of do that i mean, I mean his, like, his efficiency right? his efficiency is very high this year he's been he's had a very efficient season i would suggest um which is you know i mean that is tennis in the end isn't it it's about um economy of movement and expending of energy i, I mean i don't think i don't think there's an argument like like yeah, he's really good at tennis. Like I saw all these people like posting loads of stuff on on Twitter, being like, "Oh my god, he's only played these tournaments. It's outrageous." You know, Djokovic has done this. I was like, oh, "Yeah, what's your point?" Like he's like he's one of the greatest players of all time, if not the greatest player of all time. Alan Partridge shrugged Jeff. <laughs> I, I put a uh, a tweet out about it, kind of saying, you know, I think this shows Djokovic is still the best player of the year or best player in the world at the minute, which I know we've kind of discussed to death on this podcast, but I did kind of add the caveat is largely of his own making and that uh that did uh, not that, that is well some baked <laughs> that is some baked, George. You've just dangled a sausage there and it has been scrumbled up. Um yeah, that's wild. I mean I I don't know. Calvin, you're presuming not gonna disagree with that. No, I mean what that is his own making? No, no, that, no. that he's that he's you know he's one of the best players in the world. If not, the, sorry, he's the best player in the world. If not the best player of all time, and therefore doesn't have to play many tournaments to yeah, get as I'd, many I'd points say, as like Andre Rublev. Yeah, I'd, I'd say yeah. That, you can't disagree with it. With it. I mean, what the, what I think is most fascinating is that I think we can also acknowledge that he's no longer the best version of Novak Djokovic mm-hmm. that we've seen. And this is what the fascinating thing is that the. The guy, I mean, how much realistically, what are we saying that he's lost since his peak? 20%? I, I like in terms of the actual tennis, it's gone down quite a lot. Like, yeah. you know, the last few years, and there have been a lot more kind of weird results where, yeah, Novak of old would definitely have wriggled out of tough situations because of like genius. Well, even that last night, doing well, even that last night, yeah, he, he wouldn't have done that. Well, he was, he was up a break, wasn't he? And the he served for yeah, it. He had a point for four. One. And he still had break points like right at the end. I mean, that last game, it did last 17 minutes, something like that. It was that utterly ludicrous kind of final game where Rune was desperately trying to get over the line and Novak was just hanging in there. And, you know, this is the thing I think that you're kind of alluding to there. He's still mentally the best when he wants to kind of be there. The thing that's not quite come there is the actual incredible tennis that was there. Still pretty good, don't get me wrong. But he just he knows how to manage matches, and there's no way, in my opinion, Holgerun wins that match over five sets. You know that next set is Novak winning it six one. No, but I, I saw Patrick McEnroe said something about this, and I just think that's a ludicrous argument to make. Like it's it wasn't best of five sets though. No, I know. Like, I know. Like, that is just Novak, isn't it? That he 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 has these massive sets, yeah, but best of five, and then he'll just blow you away. That holds as much weight as the that holds as much weight as the people in football who compare like. Now they go, well, this Man City team's the best team ever because they got 96 points and like <laughs> such and such team only got 64 points to win the league. Like you you get as many points as you need to win the league. 
and you you win as many sets as you need to win the match. I guess I guess the point I'm making is that like he, I still think no one navigates a best of five sets match like he does, and that's no, really probably not. Yeah, that's but... where we're kind of are on the tour at the minute is like I think there'll be significant chunks taken out of him, and his there'll be chinks in his armor that are appealed. But Rune getting over that sort of two-one lead, then having to come back out and go set after set after set again, you know, that's where Novak is at his best mentally. The way he just doesn't switch off after that sort of set is straight back in and goes, and that's that's caught enough people out over the last few years. Sissipas, Massetti, Sinner, all those big matches, yeah. they have big monumental efforts to get in the lead, and then Novak goes bang, and that one moment, that one moment they're rocked. It's so hard to come back because he's just relentless. I, I think that's still going to be the pattern at the slams next year for me. Well, we shall see, as I'm so fond of saying. Oh, we're going to move on because uh, there's an 18-match streak that Alex Domeneur has scrapped that people may have heard me allude to in the intro. Maybe going, I don't understand, Alex Domeneur. He's won quite a lot of matches this year. This can't be an 18-match league. You're right. However, let me paint a picture. Four years ago... Alex Domeneur played against a singles match against a top five player for the very first time competitively. And he lost a fifth set tiebreak to Alexander Zverev in the Davis Cup. What he might not have thought is he would play another 17 matches against top five players and not win a single one of them. Barely, in fact, pick up a set. Um, it's one of the odder runs for a guy who's been in and around the top 30 for the last three years. But he has finally snapped it. Uh, he beat Daniel Medvedev 6-4, 2-6, 7-5. Uh, in the last 32 in Paris. A slight funny story about this. I was in Shrewsbury and Katie Bolter came in for an interview with a couple of us and she had her phone on the table. She said, sorry, tense moment. It's five all in the third. And for people who don't know, Katie Bolter is dating and has been for quite a long time, Alex Dimoner. And uh, she put the phone down on the table. Uh, She did 15 minutes of interview without once even... It was open and still playing, and at no point did she glance down, to the extent that when we finished, someone said, oh, he won, you know, and she's like, shut up, did he really? Um, Which I thought was actually really impressive. I think if my other half was playing like a career-defining match, I'd have probably sacked off the interview. Um, Calvin, Alex de is a funny player. I was thinking about this earlier today when I knew we were going to talk about him, because I sort of think of him as a throwback. Like, there are... there isn't really another player like him in the top 30 and it makes me wonder if there's a ceiling on 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 him to a certain extent um i'd agree with all that yeah um he's as i've said before i think he's probably the fastest player that's ever been on a tennis court um in terms of getting around uh but he the reason why he's not beating the top 5 players is um he just doesn't have a whole lot of firepower and I think mm. that's always going to be the case. And I think he'll think we'll see his career. He'll have one of those careers now where he pretty much does what he's done this year. I would think. I don't think he'll go higher than he's been. Um, but I think he's definitely not going to drop any. George, yeah, I mean, I think since 2018 when he first cracked the top 30, he's wavered between a max of 15 and a low of 40. But generally, been kind of 20 to 30. That's it's possible for him to maybe break the top 10 at some point given you know some big guys will drop out there and he's a fairly steady eddy um but i agree with calvin he just lacks that firepower what he does have actually in terms of firepower 
is like great counter punching on the stretch. You know, that against Medvedev, he really turned that match by his ability. He's, he's really, in case you've not watched him before, he's absolutely rapid, Dibnor. And it's that counter punch where he's kind of out really wide on the court. He's got, got a good kind of slap forehand, bang backhand where he can kind of get wide quickly and counter punch. I just, the issue is it's quite hard to keep making that shot time after time after time after time. <laughs> and, you know, it's a fairly long, strenuous playing style. So, yeah, I'd, I'd be shocked if he ever went higher than like, nine in the world and i think he'd do well to break the top 10 to be honest i i think i would agree with that as well like it that said we, we we've got a habit on this podcast of putting ceilings on players and they, <laughs> they uh they the conse- falls in. yeah they consequently um beat them i mean i guess what what funny enough what katie said as soon as he won where she said he's worked so so hard and you know eleanor crooks who was with us from the press association she said oh he's played really well this year quite a lot and Katie just will make sure you tell him that, and it, you know there is a, an extent to which if you've got if you've got elite level talent, to, at some point, if you work hard enough, <laughs> George has just had the lights turned off and by his partner. It's <laughs> very funny. Um, you know that there is always going to become an opportunity, and I do wonder whether like that can kind of present itself to a player like uh, a player like that. Um, Let's move on again because we're we're running out of time and there's loads to get through. Uh, I probably won't dwell on this, but a disappointing week in Paris for the Brits. Uh, Dan Evans, Annie Murray, and Jack Draper all losing in round one. Uh, Cam Norrie made it to round two and then lost to Corentin Moutet in a, an absurd match, which started just after midnight in Paris. It didn't finish till three in the morning. I wanted to just not to discuss it necessarily, um, and maybe we'll come up another time, but. I wanted to mention something that um, Yasmin Syed said on, on, on... She works for The Express, people may know. She's a tennis journalist. She's obviously a, a young woman. And she pointed out that one of the thing problems with having these incredibly late-night matches and this disproportionately affects women is, like, going home after a match. Like, not many people want to go to a tennis match if it involves, like, having to go home at four in the morning. Like, that can be quite an unsafe thing to do in a lot of cities. And it... Yeah, it's just that's something I hadn't considered because that's kind of like male privilege, right? Like you don't have to worry about this stuff. Yeah, and <clears throat> from a kind of like, you know, advantage versus disadvantage background in terms of making tennis more accessible, what transport's running at that time? Realistically, looking for a cab. Yeah. That's expensive. That prices people out. That adds an extra 20, 30, 40 quid on your day. Hmm. You know, it it's so stupid and we're not going to dwell on this too long. I just want to say sort your bloody life out tennis stop putting things on at such ridiculous time why are there six matches scheduled on that court in a day that's mental and night sessions get rid of them they're rubbish and they're so dumb from a ticket holder perspective tennis sort your life out well especially the late ones i mean the thing is for me is like you've got to be more pragmatic and you've got to go right it's 11 p.m and we're still at least a set away from this nadal mat it was nadal before i think finishing um let, Norrie you're playing on court one like I know we had you on centre and we'd love to have you on centre but it's that or like finish at three in the morning like I think you have to be more pragmatic as, a, as an organiser because that option was there I think Calvin I think yeah that probably would have happened but knowing who he was playing I assume <laughs> that Corentin Matet would have just disagreed with whatever Cam Norrie wanted to do Yes, yes. I mean, Corentin and Mutet, whatever anyone else in the room wanted like, to do. Like you, you think Holger Rune's a dick. Like Corentin yeah. Mutet takes it to a whole new level. Yeah. 
Um, other interesting developments in Paris, Carlos Alcaraz retiring with an injury and then ending his season early, which, I mean, he would not have taken lightly because he was obviously due to play ATP finals. He was also due to play Davis Cup finals in Spain uh, for Spain, which would have been a pretty special occasion, despite his uh, famous loss to Felix Auger-Aliassime after winning the US Open and becoming world number one. Um, so we await, I think, am I right in saying it's a knee injury, George, if I made that up? Ab, I think. Ab, oh, right, another ab. He had a knee problem the week before. So, yeah, it's been a long season. It's been a pretty poor start to being world number one, but we can maybe put it back to fatigue and yeah. maybe he'll kind of yeah. bounce back. I don't think there's any long-term concerns about Alcaraz, despite our disagreement on how much he'll dominate next year or not. Nick Kyrgios has paid £20,000 to a fan who he called drunk out of her mind at Wimbledon. Uh, she turned out to be a Polish lawyer and she felt she had been defamed. Uh, by him uh, and consequently brought a suit which was then settled for £20,000 which has gone to charity incidentally for people who might be interested Uh, I don't know if she represents herself and I don't know if she billed some fees that she may have been paid Um, but uh, either way all's well that ends well and it's nice to see someone being held accountable for their actions on the tennis court Um, very finally uh, Harry Kane has been mentoring Emma Raducanu according to an athletic headline today i'm told not really they had two conversations but you know that's news for you and very very finally because we have 90 seconds to get it in henry patton's won another four matches and another title and calvin it just keeps it it's happened again as arsenal fans are so keen as saying <laughs> he's well he's actually won something more than the, uh, <laughs> arsenal fans arsenal haven't so <laughs> for a long time yeah <laughs> um so yeah um it's happened more for him than it has for them um, and he but, also beat um, uh, he along beat, with Julian I mean, let's Cash. say he played with Julian Cash as well. Like yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know. Um, but he also beat another one of your players. They also beat Luke Johnson out in Charlottesville. Yeah. How, how much did you talk to the two players before that match? Uh, I said I'd speak to them both about their own games, but I wouldn't discuss tactics uh, for the other player. Okay. Uh, and yeah. and and it was a pretty close one. It was the best match of the week. It was a, a real real top class exciting doubles match uh it's the best match i watched all week in paris or um in charlottesville to be honest <laughs> really good standard doubles uh, that wouldn't have been out of place at uh, a master series well we um await probably not much longer until we get those two at a master series we hope uh this has been everything from the love tennis podcast there's been plenty to listen to please do make sure to come back next week and we'll have even more Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.